top of the table, I'm Sandy Chassel. My passion is finding and sharing what gets someone to the top in this profession, top of the table, top advisor, top agency, and so on. I'm honored today to be talking with someone who has been at the top of the table for nearly two decades, speaking with me from London, Bupinder Anand. Bupinder is the founder and managing director of Anand Financial Architecture, and I'm sure we're gonna be talking about that name today. In addition to being a top of the table member, he's been listed at least a couple of times as the best independent financial advisor in London. Uh, Bupinder is a globally recognized and sought after trainer and speaker, having addressed audiences all over the world, including an MDRT audience that topped 12,000 attendees. He's also the author of a motivational book, Smashing the Glass Ceiling, about breaking through your personal barriers to success. Bupinder, I'm excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Sandy. It, it makes me sound interesting. Thank you. <laughs> you definitely are interesting. And, and I'm, I may ask you some questions today that you don't get a lot of opportunity yeah. to talk about. Uh, one of them in particular is, I'm always curious how someone decides to get into this profession. How did it happen for you? That's a really good question. Um, and, and, you know, for a lot of people, they fall into this business. You know, they, they, it isn't their first choice of career. I've got to tell you, for me, it was the first choice of career because of my father's insurance agent, who I admired, and so did he, intensely. Uh, to the extent that uh, he was a Sun Life of Canada rep uh, based in London. To the extent that Brian Morley, uh, I remember his name well, um, was a family friend. He came to our family functions, came to our weddings and things like that. And I always used to look up to him and think, who is this person? He, he, he comes and meets my father occasionally, has a conversation, helps him out in business, helps him to sign some papers, I don't know what for, as a young person, young lad. But I respected him. So when the opportunity came for me to look for a career, I thought, well, Brian Morley is somebody that's respected. That's a career that sounds very interesting. He's meeting people all the, all the time. He's helping people all the time. I'd like to do that. So I, I thought that's the career I want to go into. But I failed. I failed the aptitude test when I was going in for the jobs, for these uh, financial consultant type jobs. And I recall vividly one of the managers saying to me at the time, after I'd filled in the aptitude test and he'd scored it, and he said, you'll never be successful in this business <laughs> because you're too nice. And I just did not understand that. Um, now I look back on it, of course, it was used to be a very cut, cutthroat business. Maybe it is in some places still. And maybe that's what he meant. But I could never understand how a people business which is what this is, you could be too nice for it. To me, that was what people wanted. And upon reflection, I'd love to be in front of that manager today and just say, yeah, I'm too nice to have done top of the table 19 years in a row. <laughs> I love that. When you started, did you have um, a plan? Were you thinking about MDRT? Did you even know what it was? Did you have uh, some idea where you wanted to go with it. Tell me about how you started. Yeah, well, where I did end up then after, after being rejected um, was working for a bank as a trainee bank manager. 
which I absolutely detested. Um, it was a it was a dead man's shoes business where you know, you only moved up if the person at the top moved up first. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did that for about a year and a half, and they wanted to give me my own branch as a manager. And I thought this is not right. If I do, if I stay here, I'll never get out of this because to move out out from there would have required a, a pay cut. What I noticed at the time was that we were being serviced by what we call broker consultants, representing their insurance companies, encouraging us as bank managers to talk to our customers about their products. We were independent brokers at that time. And I felt at the time, a lot of these guys, these women, um, they don't know their own products. They don't know the jargon. They have no personality whatsoever. I could do that job. <laughs> and so I used to challenge them and find that they, they didn't know anything, yet they had a bigger salary than me, drove around in the company car and had a big expense account. So I went for that job. And to cut a long story short, I uh, was interviewed and offered several of those jobs, but took one of those where I was a broker consultant servicing independent financial advisors, trying to encourage them to give me more of the share of their business that they were doing with their clients. So it was very useful as a grounding to getting into this business because it gave me good insight into both the product side of things, how they actually worked, because I knew, needed to know how they worked, but also a great insight into who were these financial advisors and what was the, the difference between a great financial advisor, a mediocre one and a really bad one. And, and there's things to learn from all of those obviously how to do it great and not how to, to do it badly. But I did learn from those people. And um, I started to feel that I could, again, just as I felt before, do a better job than some of these advisors. That's not being arrogant. It's just saying, you know, uh, I'm confident. I like what I do. And so five years into my role as a broker consultant, I was on 160% of my target. The company, to put it, give it some perspective, was only on 75%. Oh. And I was only working a three-day week because I just had a great panel with great relationships. And I woke up one day and I said, I don't want to do this as a three-day week now. I want to do a three-day week later in my life. So I left. And everyone said I was crazy because I was joining the, the retail side, if you like, the, the, the front line, just when commission disclosure was coming in where our clients would be told pounds and pence, dollars and cents, what we were going to get paid. And everybody said this will be the end of the industry at the time because you know, people don't know what we get paid. If they ever knew that, we, we, would, um, uh, we would struggle. Well, I was learning from the ones that were good. And I understood very early on and, and demonstrated by the fact that I had a great panel that I worked with, that relationship was key. And that if you had confidence in yourself and created value, getting paid handsomely for that was never an issue. And I think those people that struggle with, oh, if, if people knew what I earn, uh, if I had to disclose that, that would be a big problem. Actually, with respect, have a problem themselves of their own value and their own confidence. So that was, that was how I came into this side. But to answer your question about MDRT, I didn't really know much about MDRT while I was a broker consultant, but perhaps demonstrative of the fact that I always want to learn and grow. 
I attended a conference called the Life Insurance Association Conference, the LIA. And uh, this was in London. And the great Norman Levine was the guest speaker at, at that conference. And this was my first exposure into global financial services, my first exposure to the, the words MDRT or Million Dollar Roundtable. And I remember a friend and I walking out of that conference so enthusiastic about what we had heard and going to the train station to get the underground home and just saying to each other, I'm a life assurance agent, <laughs> which we'd never felt that before of, of the passion that you can have about what we do. And so it didn't take much effort then for me to move from the broker consultant role to being a financial advisor. Sorry, long answer to your question. No, great, great answer to my question because you, people want to know like, well, how you got where you got mm -hmm. uh, and then went it up to the level of quarter of the table, top of the table, what did you do differently than you did before? And you have some unique things, even calling your business architecture mm -hmm. uh, and the way you introduce yourself. I mean, I've watched your videos and, and, and you know, I, my, my sense is you have a lot that you can share. What was the moment when things clicked and you were doing the right things so you could get to the top? Okay, I, I'm going to try and keep this answer short, but I'm almost, <laughs> almost giving you my biography here. Um, I think it's important here to, to take a step backwards to when I became a financial advisor. And I already given you the motivation behind it, but also what was the, the foundation of the success for the future? I think that it's a useful thing perhaps I could share there. Sure. One of the things that... Uh, when I was a broker consultant, one of the guys on my panel that gave me the vast majority of my business and essentially all of his business, identified a niche market. And that was one of the things that I understood is niche marketing. His particular niche market was the gay community. Now, he identified himself, he's gay himself, um, as the go-to person for that community. And I understood that you had to brand yourself, you had to market yourself to your niche community. Of course, the niche community has to be worth targeting. And, and the gay community is a very affluent community. You know, they, they're generally in higher paid occupations and they generally don't have the lifestyle expenses of a heterosexual couple, no children, etc. And so they had lots of spare income and he was doing a lot of business in that sector. So I took that theme with me. I remember I learned from great advisors and said, okay, what's my niche market? And so I set myself a goal. And, and it's really important about setting goals that are very clear. And my goal was to be recognized as the most professional advisor to the Indian community within five years, bracket in at least London. So just to give myself a chance. Right. There are a lot of other successful people, but I was starting from nothing. I had no clients at all. So that's a pretty clear goal to be recognized as the most professional advisor to the Asian, we call it Indian community. Sorry, we call it Asian. I think you call it Indian community in North America right. within five years. Now it's all very well having a goal. How do you start on that goal? Mm -hmm. So here's a philosophy that I've carried through the last 30 years. Have you ever tried to put together a jigsaw puzzle 
say a hundred piece or even a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but with no picture on the box. That's just craziness. <laughs> you wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> Yet how many people will live their lives and get to the end of their lives and say, what was the picture on the box I had created from the pieces of the puzzle in life that I picked up? Oh dear, that's not the picture I wanted. In fact, I picked up pieces that don't even belong to me, that aren't helping me create that, the picture I want. So what was very important was to have clarity, a high definition picture of what the future looked like for me. With that clarity, identified by the goal I, I just laid out, you then start saying, okay, to create that picture, what are the pieces of the puzzle that I need to pick up and spend time on to create that picture? And so if my goal was to be recognized as the most professional, the first thing I did was target the community by writing for a newspaper. So I approached the editor of a, uh, an English language newspaper, circulated at 40,000 people a week, or 40,000 copies a week, probably 100,000 people saw it. And I approached the uh, editor to write a personal finance column in that newspaper. And we agreed that I would do that. So every week I would have a half page column with my photograph and a little byline that said, if you want further advice, give me a call. I was then starting to be recognized when I went to parties or weddings or things like that that people would come up to me and say, oh, you're the guy that writes in the newspaper. I have a question on. And so people were starting to get recognition of who I was, which was kind of half the goal of what I was trying to do. The second part was to be recognized as the most professional. And again, I come back to, if you don't have a clear vision of where you want to get to and then identify the pieces of the puzzle, things like this that I'm about to share will never happen. So 14 months into the business, I entered a competition called IFA of the Year, Independent Financial Advisor of the Year. Again, cut a long story short, the, the nature of that competition is that you uh, look at a, a booklet that's issued by one of the trade magazines or trade newspapers uh, that has a do dozen different case studies in it. And you choose one of those case studies and you answer that question in the form of a 2000 word report, which I did. You then get shortlisted in as top three in one of those categories and you then get called in for judging in front of a panel who pretend to be the client and then quiz you on alternative questions you need to be on your feet quick on your feet and then you go to the award ceremony and, and it's like the oscars they come along and say for this category the list of uh, uh, uh nominations are and then the winner is and they pull it out the envelope um, and then out of the 12 category winners, they then say, who's best of best, who's overall? Well, I won my category for retirement planning for the self-employed, and I won the overall category just 14 months into the business. Eastern Eye newspaper splashed me on the front page to say that they had, their finance editor was the best financial advisor in the UK. So now within 14 months of becoming an advisor, I had ticked my five-year goal, having achieved that, recognized as the most professional, not just in the Indian community, but nationally. So setting goals is really, really important. And that became the foundation to much of what I do on, on a rolling five-year type program. I'm constantly setting new goals and challenging myself. 
shortly after I won that award, I left the firm that I was working with and joined Caroline Banks. Now, many people know Caroline Banks as a past president recently of MDRT. But she was a member of MDRT at that time, and she introduced me to MDRT, even though I'd heard of it from Norman Levine before, but she encouraged me to go to my first conference. It was mind-blowing. Completely unbelievable of, of how the scale of this conference, the number of people from different countries, but also how approachable people were, if you bothered to approach. And that's one of my keys to success. Talk to people, ask your peer group, especially those that are wearing the, the blue ribbon of call to the table or the white ribbon of top of the table. Say, can I buy you a coffee? Can I, can I buy you a, a beer even? Um, and just ask some questions. We want to help. I don't know any of my peer group at the top of the table that don't want to help. But we'll only help if people ask. We're not going to force ourselves on, on anybody. So I went to my first MDRT meeting, was blown away by uh, what uh, took place, and have not attended, uh, sorry, not failed to attend one for the last 23 years. Wow. I was a qualifier for a year, and after a year I became core to the table through learning from the things that I'd learned from other people and speakers at MDRT. Five years after becoming MDRT, then the world really opened up because the levels of confidence were greater, the new concepts and new ideas and the packaging of those ideas improved, that I became top of the table, which I'm, I've already said it, but, but honored to be at that level for, for 19 years. Okay. In terms of the, the branding uh, of why I call myself a financial architect and why the business is called financial architecture, it came from MDRT. It came from a throwaway line in one of Bruce Etherington's speeches. And he casually said, you know, sometimes we're like a financial architect where we create people's financial homes and then we find the right financial furniture to furnish it with. I loved that phrase, so much so that on the air, airplane journey back home, I wrote my whole brand new branding to be called a financial architect. And I created a script where people, when they ask me, what do you do? I describe myself as a financial architect. What I do for people is design and create their future financial homes. This home represents their future dreams, their future aspirations. Perhaps particular rooms in this home represent their particular goals or objectives. But it's only when I've designed somebody's financial home that I then go looking for the right financial furniture to furnish it with. But when I meet people for the first time, I find that they've got a briefcase full of financial furniture with no strategy, no coherency. And that's a little bizarre. You know, you wouldn't buy furniture before you bought a house, but people do it with financial furniture. So we'll take a look at the financial furniture you've accumulated, see if it fits the financial home that we've designed, because you wouldn't necessarily put antique furniture in a modern contemporary home. And so if your financial furniture needs updating, we'll do that for you. And then just like a home, a house needs good maintenance, so does your financial home. So we work with you throughout your lifetime to help you redesign your financial home and refurnish it when necessary. So that's a bit long-winded. I don't use it in full that way every time. But essentially, I'm differentiating myself from anybody else. 
who might describe themselves as a financial planner or a wealth management or a wealth manager or a life insurance agent. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they're not different. And so coming back to what I learned from Ivan uh, when I was the broker consultant, you have to be different. You've got to stand out from the crowd in terms of what you say and then follow that through in what you do for people so that they have an experience that they are not going to get anywhere else. Wow. You know, in my book, Become a Client Magnet, I talk about being the red crayon in a box of white crayons. And you just <laughs> described that absolutely perfectly. Um, one of the things that uh, you've talked about that I'd love for you to repeat here is it's not just how you describe what you do, but when somebody says, Bupinder, tell me what you do. Uh, you have an approach that uh, I believe is so much more powerful than what most advisors do. So I'm going to ask you, Pinder, what do you do? Okay, well, well uh, let's let's play a little role play here. Okay. Go, uh, ask me that again, and I'll answer you. I'm going to pause, just to discuss what the effect of those words are, and then we'll do it again and pause again, and then uh, finish it off. Um, so yeah, far away again. <laughs> Great. So this is a question internationally that usually comes up in the U.S. It comes up first before anything. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, Bupinder, what is it you do? Well, thank you for asking. Pause. Most people are not bothered to appreciate or give gratitude to the person for asking. But how do you feel? Remember all the words that we use when we're discussing anything with clients have got to involve emotion. And so by just answering the question with an occupation involves no emotion at all. Also, the psychology behind saying things that people don't expect, let's understand that, is to take control of the conversation. You see, most people, when you ask them, what do you do? They just say, yeah, I'm a plumber, I'm a surgeon, whatever it is, it's straight into a, a job. And, and that's almost a hypnotic conversation then because that person says something, then they say, what do you do? And you're just a, a to and fro. Whereas when you ask me, what do you do? And I said, thank you for asking. It breaks state. It breaks that hypnotic state where you are expecting an occupation as an answer. I'm now in control on two levels. One, because I've got you thinking, hang on, I wasn't expecting that. Number two, you can't not like me. Okay. just from those innocent words. Yeah, I, you, thank you for asking. Thank me, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's run that again. I'll go to the next step. Uh, oh, um, so I, I said, what do you do? And you said, thank you very much. So, so oh, no, 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 let's do it again. No, do it yeah. from from the beginning again. So, okay, what do you do? Um, Bupinder, it's nice meeting you. What do you do? Well, thank you for asking. You see, I love what I do. I get really excited by what I do because I have the best job in the world. Pause there. Well, yeah, I mean, of course the question's gonna be, what's that? Okay, so pause there just to consider. When most people answer the, uh, ask, well, answer the question of what do you do? They say, I regret what I do. I wish I did something else. <laughs> yeah, I'm only doing this temporarily to yeah. find something better. <laughs> or yeah, I have a really boring job. So. If, if we want to get enthusiasm from our prospect, if we want to get them ignited by putting them on fire, or ignite them by putting them on fire, <laughs> um, uh, 
we need to be enthusiastic ourselves. We need to appreciate what we do and express that in order for the other person to smile and say, wow, don't meet many people who love their job. So in this business, I don't know any financial advisor that doesn't love what they do. I don't know any financial advisor that, that is genuinely involved in helping clients that doesn't believe they have the best job in the world. Yet they don't tell anybody this. Yeah. And they get straight into a product description or a job description. Yet that emotive language is engaging and just brings people in. So I'm, I'm, the, the, the speech I gave at MDRT on, on the main platform was the power of words. And, and I'm using that to explain how the words we use have the ability to influence the reaction we get from people, to lead to a response that we want from those people, to create the result that we desire from those people. So if we can just do this one last time and uh, I'll, I'll take you through. So sure. once again. Bupinda, what do you do? Well, thank you for asking. You see, I love what I do. I get so excited by what I do because I have the best job in the world. You see, yeah. I'm a financial architect. Financial architect, what's that? Right, exactly. Now I should add, well, so the minute I say I'm a financial architect, for your purpose, I'm also a mind reader. <laughs> you know I'm going to ask that. Question. I know what you're going to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so the art of successful conversation in this business is taking control, but doing it in such a subtle way that it's not too obvious. And so when I say I'm a financial architect, I know 100% people are going to say, that's interesting. What does that mean? Or tell me more. And then I'll go into, I'm not going to do it again, but the entire yeah, script of right, the, right, or a right, shortened right. version of, of a, I'm a financial architect. Yeah, you and I both agree about the importance of language, the importance of words. I mean, as coaches, and both of us coach, you are, are clearly listening to the words people use, and that gives you insight into what's happening inside them. So for advisors, there are words that I know that you talk about that could be replaced with better words. And mm -hmm. I'd love to have you talk about that. Yeah, well, one of the easiest ones to understand, and, and it does come down to the power of words, how you can change language and have a different effect on, on those people. And so here's a, here's a really interesting one, especially people kind of think, no, I can't use that until they try it. How many advisors, when they meet somebody to make an appointment, say, if they do say anything, is that the first meeting is free? Yeah. Right. There's a problem with saying that the first meeting is free. Yeah. Because the what the reality of that is, when somebody says the first meeting is free, what they're really saying is, I have no value. I'm not worth anything. Indeed, even if you don't show up, it's not a problem, is how people hear that. In my opinion, saying nothing at all about the price or cost or value of a first meeting is even worse because it lacks confidence and it leaves a very important question up in the air, which if we address it early on, actually creates a completely different dynamic to uh, the conversation we're about to have. So never say the first meeting is free. Never say nothing about the cost or price or value of the first meeting. Instead, have the confidence, have the self-belief and say, the first meeting is at my expense. Because it is in some way, isn't it? At my expense. Absolutely. It's time, 
whether it's the price of a coffee, whatever it might be, it's at my expense. But here's the thing. It changes the entire dynamic of that relationship. Because when I say the first meeting is at my expense, it means I'm saying I have a value. I'm worth something, but I'm willing to share it with you. It also takes advantage of something called the power of reciprocity, which says, if I do something for you, you will feel obliged to do something back for me. So if I give you my time at my expense, hopefully you may give me a signature on a form to reward me for that. Now, here's the big barrier that people have to face in their own minds. Coming back to one of the things I said earlier on about valuing oneself and not being afraid to say there is a value or price attached to what I do. A lot of advisors, a lot of agents are concerned that if I talk about money or value or price early on, it may put some people off. Or I don't charge fees and therefore why should I say the first meeting is at my expense? I think that's missing the point. It's just saying there is a value at the first meeting. Even if you don't charge fees, it opens up the conversation into, well, how do you get paid? And then you can say, well, I don't charge fees because I earn a commission. Or I do charge fees, but I only charge them to people that once I've had a meeting with them and done the research, don't wish to proceed. So if you don't want to charge a fee, it doesn't matter because you've got the ability to say, I'm not charging, but there is a professional conversation about how do I get paid? And I, I just, I struggle to understand advisors who won't open up about how they get paid as if it's some kind of mystery or enigma. Yeah, it, it always amazes me how they want to keep that covered up and, and we don't want to talk about commissions. We don't want to talk about uh, the fees on the assets. We, how, how can we hide that? And you want to be proud of the fact that I'm going to give you this help and it's got a value. Sure. But one of the things I, I do, and, and this is not for beginners, certainly, but it is something perhaps that people could work their way up to. I charge a joining fee or an engagement fee to be my client, just to set up the back office systems and the compliance work. So that's around $500 just to be a client. Didn't get anything for it. But yeah. other than me, access to me and, and the honor, if you like, of being a client of mine. I'll come on to that point in a second. Second, I have a menu of fees. So depending on what area of advice you want at this point in time, I will charge a fee for giving that advice. I charge a fee for getting you some quotations. You pay that fee up front. And if you don't pay it, I won't get the quotations. Yes. Now, this is all part of a process. Obviously, it doesn't just happen by asking. You've got to have a, a, a background to this. You've got to have an outcome to this and a journey along the way. But I now get people who will pay me over $1,000 upfront to be a client and to, for me to get the quotations. I then get them that set of quotations and then to implement what they want, I then um, charge, uh, sorry, earn a commission as my fee based upon what they buy. But here's what happens. Probably three out of 10 people that I meet say, I don't want to do that because my friend would, or someone else would do it for nothing. I say, good, go there. <laughs> okay. right. Because I know the other seven I meet, I'm not going to be wasting my time because they're serious about their financial future. Yeah, so actually here's a point I would like to add to, to this. 
discussion about confidence. Um, and it was something that came up on a Facebook forum that I was taking part in just this week, where somebody was saying about replacing an existing policy. And I piped up and said, well, one of the things to take into account is does the existing advisor have a clause in their business that says if you cancel a policy in the earnings period and I have a clawback of commission, I'll charge you. And some people on that Facebook forum laughed as if that was a crazy thought. Well, it's in my terms of business. It says, if you take out a policy with me, I will earn a commission. I'll tell you how much I get. If you cancel it in the next four years and I'll lay out in my suitability letter what that clawback amount will be year by year. If you cancel it, I reserve the right to come and invoice you for it. How is that not a professional thing to do? It is a professional thing to do. Yeah. It's the way that you should do it. Because I've been paid for doing a job. I've done the job. That's why I got paid. But now I have to keep my fingers crossed behind my back for four years that you keep the premiums going. That's not a business to be in. It's a professional way of working and it also protects my business. There's another step that I do, which I think shocks many, many people, but it is a core understanding of what I talked about process. If we, and value, what is value? That's a great word. In the client relationship, from the time we meet them to the time that we deliver the policy, where's the value? Where, at what point are we creating value from the client's perspective, not from our perspective, but always from the client's perspective. And I put it to, to my peers. The value is in everything other than signing the application. The value is in the advice, the fact finding, getting them to understand what their needs are, their wants are, their dreams, getting them to understand how we can protect those dreams for them. That's a big value add. The fact that we then get them to sign an application which we process, they don't value that bit at all yeah and yet if we've got all these steps in between where the value is being added but we're not charging for that instead we're keeping our fingers crossed all the way through that the client says yes and that he buys a policy and then we keep our both fingers crossed that it stays on the books for four years that's just crazy <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's why i believe we should charge fees professionally for advice and a separate earning for implementation. But here's the point that I wanted to add in my terms of business. If I start a policy, or sorry, if I get you through to acceptance and you change your mind at that point in time, what have I got paid if I didn't charge anything up to now? Nothing. Nothing, right. Nothing, because I had to keep my fingers crossed tight. But if you change your mind, and people do, we know that, I did all the work, especially creating the value and the actual physical work of getting the acceptance and the client changed their mind, I earn nothing. So I have a clause in my terms of business saying, if I get you through to acceptance and you don't put it on cover, I will charge you 50% of the commission I would have earned. Wow. And why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Why not? Because have I done the work? Powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's powerful. So you can only do this if you have a, sense of self-belief and self-confidence and self-worth and that is the biggest thing at mdrt that i've learned that has taken me from mdrt to quarter of the table to top of the table is that difference 
and oh yeah this is the point i wanted to make earlier the difference between Here's my observation of speaking at conferences all around the world and coaching financial advisors. The vast majority of people say, or have the behavior of, please, can I be your advisor? Please, can I qualify to be your agent? How about turning the tables and getting our clients to say to us, please, can I qualify to be your client? Please, am I big enough to be your client? Will you take me on? You know you're successful when you say no more than you hear no. Oh, I love that. When you say no more than you hear no. You, that's great. That's the kind of advice I was hoping that you would share with us today. And so I want to ask you, that was one of the things that I have not heard you talk about. I'd love to uh, ask you, first of all, to just mention your book and your coaching program. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I, um, I, I speak at conferences all around the world, have done for, for over 20 years um, to small audiences and large audiences. And I absolutely love sharing my experiences and sharing my stories. And a few years ago, people started saying to me, love your speech. Where's your book? I didn't have one. <laughs> so yeah. I locked myself in a hotel room and wrote a book because it's the only way it was going to happen. And so my book is called Smashing the Glass Ceiling, Breaking Through Your Personal Barriers to Success. It's a motivational book. It's about how we live our lives looking at what we want as if it's the top of a skyscraper, our goals and our aspirations, but we're looking at it through a glass ceiling. We know what we want, we can see what we want, but there's something holding us back. So what my book does is help you to identify what those goals and aspirations are, but then also identify what are those glass ceilings. And invariably, the vast majority, if not all of those glass ceilings are in here. Yeah. It's about our attitude towards the problems that we think we have. And then I share strategies that have helped me and their stories about uh, my attitude in, in this business and attitude in life of how we smash through that glass ceiling to get to where we want to get to. And that is not just once, but on a continuous basis. Um, so it, it's been very well received and I've really enjoyed writing that. The second aspect of what I do as well as speaking. So if anybody has any conferences, whether they're company conferences or, or associations uh, that is interested, please get in touch and, and uh, I can tell you what I do. But something I started uh, a few years ago was coaching. Because what I realized, although I love being on stage and helping people, the vast majority of an audience of an hour is not gonna do very much. Right. And so now I'm spending every three months a day with a group of advisors. So I need a minimum of 50 advisors and I spend a full day with them and I take them through a coaching program. And in that coaching program, I share all of my intellectual property, all of the experience, all of the ways of working. I take them through scripts. I take them through role plays that I do with clients. And we do that every three months with a webinar just like this in between where we catch up and say what's working and what's not working. Right. I am staggered by the response and uh, that's that's achieved i've now got people that are in dubai for example which is way behind the world in terms of its financial services charging fees and these people <laughs> couldn't even spell the word fee and after the first class they were charging big fees having first said nobody in dubai would pay a fee because nobody charges a fee well my attitude to that is be the first 
why do what everybody else is doing when you could be doing something differently to set yourself apart, which is what I come back to as a theme of what I've been saying. Yeah. Secondly, through some of the tools that I've shared, which were, for example, I have a tool that helps you plan the next 10 years of your life, which the delegates do. And then we ended up saying, well, what if you shared that with a client and got them to do it? Some of the delegates have now shared that with friends and people they know. Not to get clients, but just to say, I've got something I'd like to share with you that I think will help you. And at the end of that conversation, those people have said, I didn't know you do this. Can I be your client? <laughs> That's great. I'm blown away. And those delegates have earned their annual course fee back in one case. So if anybody's interested in that too, please do get in touch. Um, I'm sure Sandy will put up my email address on the screen. Oh, yeah. It's bupinda at anandassociates.com. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. So I, I want to ask you, I've heard a lot of the things that you talk about. What's something that you can share with us that um, maybe you don't talk about a lot, but you think is important? Wow, where do I start? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll come to you right away, but I thought yeah, I'd... Um, I think, again, from what I've experienced and observed around the world, and, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, the client comes first. Now, that's such a glib comment. I, I recognize that. But it requires self-analysis. It requires an in-depth understanding of who we are and what we stand for and what we can do for people. And I say that, that there's only two professions, in my opinion, that have the power to influence people. Other than politicians, I don't count them. <laughs> um, but the medical profession and us as financial advisors and life insurance agents. We have the ability to influence people's lives. And that comes with massive responsibility. And that's the thing the responsibility part of it. It's not about what I make with a client or what I earn with a client today, but can I sleep at night? Is there a question I ask myself every night? Did I make a difference to somebody today? And if you can answer that question in the positive, even however small, every day you are making a difference in somebody's life and you're feeling energetic and confidence from doing that, as opposed to, how much did I make today? Which is what many people might think. I have a, um, another way of answering the what do you do question, which Sandy, if I can share that, okay. which I think also might help people to understand a little bit more about what I've just said. When Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, at the time that he painted it, there was no value to it other than the canvas and the oil paint that was splashed over it. Even when he painted it at that time, there was no value other than the canvas and the paint that was on it. And yet, today, the Mona Lisa is the most priceless work of art we can imagine. My friends, anybody watching this, listening to this, isn't that exactly what we do? Because we get a piece of paper with a drop of ink within which is enshrined a promise to pay. And at the day we hand it over to our client, it has no value other than 
the piece of paper and the drop of ink upon it. And yet what made the Mona Lisa so valuable was time. What's gonna make our piece of paper, our policy document valuable is time. Because one day, and who knows when, it will replace the person that bought it. It will continue to provide the food, the clothing, the shelter that their family or their business needs. So my friends, we're not financial advisors. We're not life insurance agents. We're financial artists. And we create financial masterpieces that one day will become priceless. Yeah, I love that. And it would have stopped us right here, except it reminded me of something else that I know you talk about. You put a letter in with the policy. Oh, well. And uh, you probably can do it for word for word, but I don't care if you do or you don't. But, but will you talk about that? Because I think that's so powerful. Well, I talked earlier on about this business is not about the products, but about creating emotions. And that emotion is not right at the beginning. It's all the way through, even to the, the delivery of a, of a policy. So when I deliver the life insurance policy, inside the wallet of the policy, I insert a letter. The letter's not from me. The letter is from the policy to the policyholder. And, and I'm going to do it off the top of my head as best as I can. But the letter says, dear John, you and I have a similar purpose in this world. It's your job to provide food, clothing, shelter, and many other things that your loved ones need. You do this while I live in your filing box. Out of your earnings will come the cost of my upkeep. And sometimes I may feel a burden to you. But one day, and who knows when, you and I will change places. Because when you die, I will come alive. I will continue to provide the food, the clothing, the shelter, and many other things that your loved ones will continue to need. John, if you do your part, I will do mine. Your sincerely, your life insurance policy. I love it. Thank you so much, Bupinder. This can't is believe I remembered that. <laughs> you did. Uh, it's. It, I think you got the whole thing. <laughs> so that was pretty good. But but these things that show a level of confidence and an understanding of the value of what we do just are so important. And I really appreciate your spending the time with us to, to bring it here. And I can't wait to get this up and out to people so that they can hear it and learn from it. So thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and uh, just being so open to sharing. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I love sharing, as I said earlier on. Um, one, of the, one of the things I just want to end with, uh, just in, in case people are, are wondering if what I talk about is real, because they may not have tried some of these things, I have a simple measure, which is my persistency ratio. I don't know what you, the phrase you might use in, in North America. Well, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah. The, the policies that stay on the books once they're taken out over the last 25 years, 100%. That's amazing. I, I'm not exaggerating. And I have the KPIs to prove it. People will say, is that for real? But I know it is. I know it is. I, I can back it up. I can prove it. Which, therefore, to me, is the evidence that what I'm doing may not just work for me, but could work for others, too. 
Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I do have one thing, one last thing I'd, I'd like oh, to um, share. Uh, sorry, I've just got things pop in my head. <laughs> um, I want anybody watching this, anybody that's listening to this, I want to give you a guarantee. Here's my guarantee. It's a really simple guarantee. I guarantee that not just on this webinar or any but of any of the webinars that Sandy is so kindly spending time on doing. If you like an idea, if you really, really like an idea, but you do nothing with it, I guarantee it will not work. <laughs> yeah. You want to call me on the guarantee? Guess where the finger will point. <laughs> yeah, it, it's people have this thing where they say knowledge is power. And I say knowledge is not power, uh, applied knowledge. Is Absolutely. Power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I learned that at MDRT many years back. It's not just about going there, writing a, 10 pages of notes and filing those notes away. It's doing something with it. Yeah, and it's obviously worked for you. So again, thank you so much for sharing and for continuing to share. And, and if anything else popped into your head, Bupinder, say it now. Do we have nine hours? <laughs> I'll give you a coaching class now. <laughs> we'll do the whole class. Yeah. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Good luck to everyone.